0: Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? because no. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Welcome to episode five of District of Conservation. I am back from Puerto Rico, where I had the most fabulous time checking out the archipelago owned by the United States. It's a territory, not a state. And although I went there for reasons unrelated to conservation, I did see some wild iguanas and I got to tour the Castillo San Felipe del Moro, which is a historical site protected and administered by the National Park Service, which is under the purview of the Department of Interior. So I had a lot of fun. If you want to see how my trip went, you can go check out my social media accounts there. But I want this episode to primarily focus on the Endangered Species Act in relation to efforts to modernize it and rein it in. I'm going to discuss a Supreme Court case that was heard yesterday, the oral arguments for that, and I'm also going to discuss several bills passed in the House Natural Resources Committee to help rein in this law, not abolish it, but to rein it in. That's very important to know the distinction there. District of Conservation is sponsored by Real Camo Girl. It's a lifestyle brand focused on ladies who love the great outdoors through the website and social media platforms. They offer a safe space where the ladies can share their pictures, stories, wild game and fish recipes and news articles about conservation and hunting perspectives. I've served as a pro staffer of theirs since September 2016. It's been two years and I've learned it's a network of women who love fishing, hunting and the outdoors in general. Women come from all sorts of backgrounds, experience levels and regions throughout the United States. It's a welcoming environment, and should you choose to be involved, especially if you're a lady, you will really enjoy it. So be sure to check out Real Camel Girl at www.realcamogirl.com and follow them across social media. Fair warning, this episode is going to be chalk-heavy on public policy in relation to the Endangered Species Act, but I want to clear any confusion you guys may have in relation to this particular law, So first and foremost, if you don't know what the Endangered Species Act, it is an environmental law that was passed in 1973 under the Richard M. Nixon administration, who was a Republican, and he put forth this. And I think at the time, government recognized that many species were on the verge of extinction. So without certain protections in place, whether it was the threatened designation or the endangered designation, a lot of critical species and habitat loss would have taken place if certain basic regulations were not put in place. So I think the original intent of the law, and I think everyone can argue that no one is calling for the abolition of this, but it's important to note that uh, this law places designations, two designations, endangered, which means a species is in danger of extinction throughout all or a significant portion of its range, the range in which it's found, and another designation that the ESA places on animals that are critically threatened is threatened, meaning that a species is likely to become endangered in the foreseeable future. And this can apply to all species of plants or animals, with the exception of pests, insects, that can get these two designations. And Congress defined it so that species could be those in subspecies, varieties, and for vertebrates, distinct population segments, meaning that certain programs for conservation could be applied to such endangered and threatened species. And what people don't know and what I've learned over the course of my time in politics and also in the conservation space is that these designations should not apply to non-native and invasive species that are not germane to the United States, which is, and this means that the protections afforded by the ESA are outside of the confines of this law onto these two aforementioned species. So it's important to know that when you apply ESA protections, they should not cover also non-native and invasive species. I don't know anyone who is calling for the abolition of the ESA. I think the contention over this law in its current format is that it fails to reform or amend designations for threatened and extinct species after they have been recovered or reached healthier levels. As you guys have heard me say on the podcast before, the segment of the grizzly bear population in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem has recovered. That's what wildlife biologists have concluded And what I'll talk about today is the fact that the House Natural Resources Committee pushed forth a bill in that respective committee to delist the gray wolf because now they've determined that that population is healthy. I'll go into that in more detail in a little bit. But people are saying that any calls to modernize the ESA naturally, that means we're going to want to see the elimination and extinction of American bald eagles. That's what they say. They use extreme measures, alarmist language. To say that any reform or any modernization of this bill is going to lead to the removal and eventual (laughs) extinction of bald eagles. I don't know anyone who wants to see this law dismantled in its entirety. We just want to see it simplified and overhauled so that species, their status, (laughs) and all that are reflected accurately. No one wants to see bald eagles extinct or eliminated. That's asinine that people continue to push this talking point. I don't know anyone who wants this. And it needs to be called out. And I want to do that in this podcast. And again, whenever an animal is recovered and no longer threatened, why should extra te- protections be afforded to them? That, that goes to show that the law isn't effective. It's not doing its purpose. It's antithetical to science. And putting a placehold on it is purely for political reasons. That's what they want the anti-hunters, the radical environmentalists to do. By placing more placeholders and not amending uh, the status to accurately reflect the health of a certain species. This is playing politics and is antithetical to wildlife management and habitat restoration efforts. The contention over the ESA is over the designation of critical habitat. So what is a critical habitat for a threatened or endangered species? It means the area is specific to a geographical area occupied by a species. At the time it is listed in accordance with the provisions of section four of the ESA. And I will talk more about what this is. Because the Fish and Wildlife Service and NOAA announced back in July that they want to reform several key sections because they're not properly enforced. They don't accurately reflect the recovery of certain species. But three key provisions, Section 4, Section 4D, and Section 7, are in need of major reforms. So Section 4 of the ESA would be reformed. This is according to the Fish and Wildlife Service press release that came out in July. And I can link this to notes of the podcast to ensure that their actions do not jeopardize the continued existence of listed species, or destroy or adversely modify critical habitat. And with respect to this provision, both of these agencies have proposed measures that offer more specificity in relation to designations made with respect to listing, delisting, or reclassification of species, also to improve how critical habitat designations are made. And I noted in my resurgent article back in July that the agency has made it clear that some of these designations of critical habitat are not prudent. Section 7 of this will deal with how other federal agencies will consult with the service and NOAA fisheries to ensure that actions are not likely to jeopardize the continued existence of endangered or threatened species or result in the ultimate destruction or adverse modification of critical habitat. That is extremely important to note. It's very convoluted, but again, I'm going to highlight Section 4D to make it a little clear as to why people want to modify this law. Independent of this Section 4 rule change, both of these agencies under the Department of Interior hope to amend Section 4D uh, that applies a blanket that awards same protections for threatened species as they would for endangered species. So threatened species are not the same as endangered species. That needs to be made clear. And reforming Section 4D would make it so that this change would exclude currently listed species will ensure that species listed as threatened in the future receive the protections tailored to the species' individual conservation needs for the foreseeable future. This would largely depart from past administrations, both Democrat and Republican, in that these two agencies have proposed that the interpretation of foreseeable future to mean that both of these agencies can cogently and clearly determine that both the future threats and the species responses to those threats are probable. Now, Section 7 of the ESA, federal agencies will have to consult with the Fish and Wildlife Service and NOAA Fisheries to ensure that their actions do not jeopardize the continued existence of any endangered or threatened species as a result of destruction or adverse modification of critical habitat. And that would basically mean that they would remove redundant or confusing language because Lord knows everyone does not like confusing or redundant language for that. So those three sections are what is being contended. And again, I think the media and advocates are misconstruing what these reforms would entail. And one of the big cases highlighting this is the case that was heard yesterday in the Supreme Court in the oral arguments in relation to Warehouser. Slash Marco Company versus the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. So, the question over this case is whether or not the Fish and Wildlife Service can designate critical habitat when the property in question is neither habitat nor essential to this species conservation. It was first heard in the local district court back in that state and also heard in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the fifth district, where it was the ruling was not cast in the favor of this company. And essentially what the merits of this case would be, if it were to be heard by the Supreme Court justices, would be that this case will rule whether the Endangered Species Act prohibits designation of private land as un- unoccupied critical habitat that is neither habitat nor essential to species conservation, which is what the landowners, Wyhauser is arguing, and whether or not the agency decision not to exclude an area from critical habitat because of the economic impact of such a designation, making it subject to judicial review. And actually, if you guys didn't know this, had Judge Brett Kavanaugh been already confirmed, this would have been his first case. And that's a shame that he's not on the bench to hear the oral arguments for this. Weyerhaeuser, which is a big timber company that is the plaintiff in this case, was first started in 1900 and is one of the world's foremost and renowned private owners of timberlands in the United States and also in Canada. They reportedly control 12.4 million acres of timberland here in the contiguous United States, and they also oversee... And manage private timberlands comprising 14 million acres under long term leases in Canada. And they also manufacture wood products. A gentleman by the name of Edward Poitivent, if I'm getting that correctly, I believe it's French, uh, he and his family have owned land in Louisiana since the end of the Civil War, so over 100 years. Land in St. Tammany Parish is rich in lumber and is a major source of. Mr. Poitivant's livelihood. And I'm reading from the Pacific Legal Foundation's website who is representing this gentleman in in the Supreme Court case. So basically what it's saying is, in 1953, after losing nearly their property during the Great Depression, this family signed a 90-year lease, which has allowed them to keep the land. In the 1990s, Weyerhaeuser Company acquired their lease for its timber operations. So Edward considers the land as much as more than an investment. He is quoted as saying, it's likely... It's like a piece of family silver or a treasured piece of art. It's a family asset, and I'd love to be able to pass it on to my own children, he says. But in 2012, the Pacific Legal Foundation says in their website, in their blog post about this case, the Endangered Species Act, under the guise of it, the Fish and Wildlife Service declared that more than 1,500 acres of property owned by him and Warehouser is a critical habitat for the dusky gopher frog. If you recall, 2012 was not a Republican administration, so under the fish and wildlife service then it was under a different direction unlike what it is today and that's important to note and what is important for context with respect to this case is that the entire state of louisiana has not spotted this dusky gopher frog in 50 years the only place where it has been found is within seven, is about 70 miles away from their property in mississippi across state lines in fact this dusky gopher frog was originally called the Mississippi Gopher Frog until 2012, right around the time that people who worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service decided that they wanted to overhaul the designation of this property uh, to ensure that this frog could survive in Louisiana too. So what they did was by locking down land on behalf of the frog that doesn't even live on this property, the feds froze an estimated $34 million in economic development. This means that the landowner cannot use this at any time for future development, meaning that it's in a huge infringement on property rights. For more content, the Fish and Wildlife Service had designated this frog as, as part of the endangered species. I mean, they have this area, this area of contention is critical habitat. Although <laughs> there's over 1,500 acres in the St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana, they're calling this section Unit 1. And this timber company owns a small portion of Unit 1 and leases the rest of the property from other corporate owners who are also participating in the case's respondents. So a small portion of this unit one, where they're calling it critical habitat designation for this dusky gopher frog, the critical habitat designation of unit one, the challenge of this, I should say, was rejected by the lower federal courts, this fifth district court. And so the Supreme Court is going to be deliberating this. And like I said, I discussed what critical habitat designations are. And since this frog has not been found within 70 miles of the so-called critical habitat designation, this is pretty much an infringement on this gentleman's right to develop his land. There's, They've proven that there's no such critical habitat uh, there. And again, Section 4B2 requires that the Fish and Wildlife Service to base designation decisions on the best scientific data available and to consider economic impacts in coming to these decisions, these critical habitat de- designations. They may exclude an area from critical habitat if it determines that the benefits of such exclusions outweigh the benefits of specifying such an area as part of the critical habitat, unless it determines that the exclusion will result in, in the extinction of the species. Cato Institute has filed a brief in support of the plaintiffs, and their statement is reads like this with respect to Unit 1 in the Commerce Clause. They say that fish and wildlife interpretation of the ESA is unreasonable and that this aggrandizement of federal power to regulate property goes beyond constitutional limits. The idea that land that is uninhabitable for a species is nevertheless quote-unquote essential to its survival is unmoored from even government logic. Simply put, the Fish and Wildlife Service effectively rewrote the ESA in a way Congress never authorized and could not constitutionally permit. Even if one accepts that the ESA fits into Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce, in which case critical habitat designation is undoubtedly a necessary part of the scheme, that power has limits. The mere existence of land does not constitute economic activity under the Commerce Clause. If it did, all land in the United States would be subject to federal jurisdiction. And if the regulation here doesn't fit into the necessary and proper clause, it's not necessary because it doesn't, Because Unit 1 plays no role in the frog's conservation, it's not proper because it infringes on state sovereignty over land use regulation. This is a case about overreach of critical habitat designations and infringement on private property rights. That's important to note, and you're going to see more cases like the House Natural Resources Committee voted by a 19 to 15 vote to remove remove ESA protections currently placed on gray wolves throughout the contiguous lower 48 States, excluding Hawaii and Alaska through the manage our wolves act. It will await approval in the house. And if it's successful after it goes to a full vote, it will move to the Senate and then await signage by president Trump. And this actually has very strong bipartisan support among both Democrats and Republicans. And it was introduced by Congressman Sean Duffy, a Republican out of Wisconsin on September 12th. Two key provisions of this bill, because I've read the legislation, it's not long, it was about four pages long. There are two key sections. Section 2 of the bill calls for full removal of federal protections for gray wolves in Wyoming and the western Great Lakes, while Section 3 fully removes the species in question from the endangered and threatened wildlife lists in the continental U.S. Any attempt to delist the gray wolf, for example, will be exempt from further judicial review As well, meaning that federal judges like the one in Montana cannot put halts in any delisting efforts. So that's a very key provision. And if you didn't know this, the Fish and Wildlife Service says that the gray wolf population has rebounded from extinction by as much as 300 percent. With an estimated population of about 5,691 gray wolves in the contiguous lower 48. Meaning that they have numbers that are robust, stable, and self-sustaining. You don't hear this from the media. And that's a pretty disingenuous thing to report you need to be able to accurately reflect the population this is what scientists and wildlife biologists have concluded the wolf is at a healthy number so I welcome the delisting of it and I hope it goes to a full house vote a few other key bills that passed in the house natural resources committee for example were the following three HR 3608 amends the endangered species act to require publication on the internet of the basis for determinations that a species are endangered or threatened That would be good to have more transparency. That would be good. H.R. 6346 amends the ESA to provide for consideration of the totality of conservation measures in determining the impact of proposed federal agency action. And the third other key piece to reform the ESA is H.R. 6355, which amends the ESA to define petition backlogs and provide expedited means for discharging petitions during such a backlog. So a lot has happened with respect to the ESA. You have the Supreme Court case, Weyerhaeuser versus U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. You have the delisting of the gray wolf. You also have these three key bills to help reform and modernize the ESA. This is not going to be going away, and you're not going to see any relenting from opponents of hunting, opponents of sound environmental measures, because they want to promote p- preservation in the Instead of conservation. And that's a key important fact that you will not hear from most media members, you will not hear from most journalistic enterprises. And I want to be clarifying any such matters for my listeners and for anyone interested in knowing what's going on in government and what should be done in the name of conservation. So that's what I wanted to talk about. It may have been very heavy. But I wanted to get these key points across to you all so you don't get confused and that you see that you can have a balance between conservation efforts and private property rights. As I mentioned in my first episode, I think there has to be a balance striked between private property rights and conservation efforts. And when landowners' rights are not respected, you're going to have problems down the road. We need all stakeholders. Private landowners are key stakeholders, and we don't want them to be pigeonholed by such legislation. To never miss an episode of District of Conservation, make sure you're following us all across different podcasting portals, such as Apple, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and the like. And you can find every participating portal on anchor.fm slash district of conservation, where you can see all episodes you may have missed. You can tune in to listen to this episode and you can subscribe to us. Make sure to follow us across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We also have a YouTube account so you never miss an episode of District of Conservation. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for episode six, coming to you soon.